Mosaic kids, you may be dismissed if you're not already being dismissed. I almost said pillar kids. <laughs> I got to remember. How y'all doing this morning? Good, good. good. My name is Kanan Parker. I am uh, one of the pastors over at Pillar Church in East Fort Worth. Uh, and this is one of our sister churches, one of our supporting churches. And we love you guys. We're grateful for you guys. So all the way from East Fort Worth, we come to you to say hello and we love you. Uh, and with that, opening your copy of God's Word to the book of Micah, to the book of Micah chapter 6. <clears throat> As you're turning there, I want to confess something to you. I want to confess to you that the older I get, the more I get bored with movies. Now, I know some of y'all are like, Kanan, you crazy? Movies are off the chain. You know, movies are great. Yes, you're right. Movies are off the chain. Movies are great. But have you ever noticed this? That almost every really good box office hit is basically a rip and a twist off of the scriptures? I don't know if y'all ever noticed that, but they're usually pulling biblical themes, twisting them up a little bit, and then they present them to us, right? It, it, think about these movies, Avatar. If you look closely, it resembles Rahab and Joshua's story. Uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. They, they, it seems like the, that movie is based on Matthew chapter 6. And Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, it, it, it's eerily familiar to the prodigal son. Frozen? I know y'all got to Yes, Frozen. There are a bunch of biblical themes running in and around Frozen. This is not an endorsement. I'm just saying. Okay? There's, the, the, there's shame. There's sin. And then there's a seeming redemption of that shame and sin after a supposed death and resurrection. There's a lot going on in these movies, and what these directors do is they take from the biblical themes so well, and they put their own sauce on it in such a way that they end up losing their biblical pedigree, right? We, we watch the movie, and we're entertained by the movie, and it seems vaguely familiar, some of the themes in the movie, but we forgot where the concept for some of those themes even came from. Now, that's what a good uh, movie director or writer is going to do. He's going to pull from something, twist it up a little bit. And he's going to give it to us in such a way. Well, I contend that there is a biblical word that we're going to talk about today that in a similar way has been taken by, not by movie writers, but by our culture at large. It's been kind of twisted a little bit, kind of manipulated in such a way, and then used. And, and I think that that word has lost its biblical pedigree, right? It, it's, it's similar to this, the rainbow. At one point, the rainbow was the symbol of God's grace and mercy to a people, to a sinful people, that he would never flood the world again. But if you ask just any old youth on the street, you're probably not going to get that answer from them. Right? It'll mean something different. That means that the church handed over something, a symbol, a rich symbol of God's grace and mercy. We allowed it to go. And what I don't want to happen is I don't want this word to go along with other biblical themes and concepts. Y'all with me? That biblical word, that, that theme, is the word justice. For some of us, that's a trigger word. When we hear that word, we're like, nah, mm, I don't like that word. For others of us, we hear that word and we celebrate. That's a great word. It's an amazing word. Well, guys, that word is a biblical word. That word is wrought from the text. In fact, that concept comes from God directly. This is called theology proper, right? The study of God specifically, him and his nature and his character. And justice comes directly from the nature of God. That's why Psalm 89 says that 
justice and righteousness are what? The foundation of God's throne. It's a biblical word. And what I want to do this morning is take back the word and then apply the word. What I don't want us to do is this. I don't want us to put up guards and defenses if we feel like that, like the, the biblical concept of justice is rubbing us the wrong way. What I want us to do is to allow the Spirit of God to do what he does through his word in your heart. What's our natural inclination when we hear something we don't like? Cut it off, don't listen to it, argue against it. My prayer is this, that you have a posture of grace in listening, and then you evaluate every word said by the text, and you allow it to do what it does in you, no matter how uncomfortable it may make you feel. This is, al- this is, this is allowing, see, us, us Trinitarians, our theology is all messed up. Not that we don't believe in the Trinity. You know, the Trinity's real, right? It's beautiful, right? But we don't allow the Holy Spirit to do his work oftentimes. We, we stifle him as soon as it's not feeling uncomfortable. You know, we praise Jesus until the Spirit starts convicting, and then we're like, all right, hold up. I don't know, that feeling's a little different. It's hitting me a little different. I'm feeling a way. Beloved, I have no desire to manipulate anything, the text or you. I just want the text to be free. That's, that's the desire. Let the text be free. Let's set it free. Let's let that biblical concept speak with all of its power and fidelity. Let's look at our text this morning. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, 8 says this. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, or some of your translations may say to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Father, as we run through this text, give us postures of grace. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Move us. It is a grace to be moved by the Spirit of God. What we don't want, Lord, is to be left by you. To come in here and then to exit here the same way we came in. But Lord, we want to be impacted by you. Impacted by your word. Inspired, changed by this truth. And so, Lord, would you let it do what it do in our soul? And will we receive your truth in Christ's name? Amen. In the book of Micah, in chapter 6, I want to give you the context of that, that, that word spoken by God. The people of Israel are in the midst of a hard situation, both socially and spiritually. They're seeing a lot of hard things in their context. You guys live, work, and play in different places, and no doubt you see and hear hard things. Some of you have endured things we call tragedies, hard things. And sometimes those hard things make us throw up an indictment against God. God, where were you when this was happening to me? God, why didn't? Because we believe in a sovereign God, right? He's in control of all things, and and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere always, right? We believe in all that. And it's like, God, if you're everywhere always and you're good, why is this evil happening? This is the concept, this is the theological concept of theodicy, a defense of God's righteousness in the face of injustice or evil. 
And so we go to God, God, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? It's like we're building a case against him about all the things he didn't do, right? And this is what hard things tend to make us sinful humans do. We build a case against God. And here the people of Israel, the Hebrews, are building a case against God. They're seeing hard things, and they're even, being, they're even exaggerating a little bit. Like, God, what do you want from me? Do you want a thousand calves or rivers of oil and all these exaggerated things because they feel like they can't please him? They feel like they've been abandoned by him. And that's the worst feeling in the world is to feel abandoned by God. And so they start to indict God. Where were you? Where were you? Where are you? You see this. Where are you? And in verse 4 and 5, God turns the tables on the indictment, as he often does with us, right? He says in verse 4 and 5, he says, where was I? I sent you Moses. I sent you Aaron. I sent you Miriam. What's he referring to? Back when the Hebrews were in Egyptian captivity and bondage and oppression, he sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam as his hands and feet, his tools of redemption to lead them out of Egyptian bondage and captivity towards the promised land, right? He says, no, I didn't abandon you. I sent you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Then he goes, not only did I send them, I sent you Balaam, he tells them. Balaam is a prophet for hire. He just runs around throwing blessings and curses. And he was hired by a dude named King Balak. And Balak hated the Israelites. And he said, I need you to come and throw curses on these Israelite people. I'm not feeling them. And so Balaam said, okay, show me the money. I come throw the curse. He gets the green, comes up. And when he's about to throw the curse, what happens? God flips the script and makes him speak blessings over God's people. And God's like, how short, how short of a memory you have. You, 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 indict, you convict me of abandoning you, you know, I indict you for forgetfulness. You forgot who I am and what I've done for you. He says, I sent you Moses and Aaron and, and, and Miriam. I sent you Balaam, the one you would think would be against you. No, he's for you because I'm for you. God says, in those days, I sent you those prophets. Implication, in these days and in these times, he sent our world and our culture, us. We are here. We are representatives. We are the hands and feet of an almighty sovereign God who's ready to put in work in order to see the people of God flourish and those who don't know God come to know God. What we cannot do as the people of God is point a finger to, across the chasm and say, look at them. They need to be straightened out. God, why don't you straighten them out? Sometimes we do it in our own house. We look at each other and say, God, straighten them out. No, God sent you and me to be his hands and feet of relational uh, impact in the lives of other people. And so he turns the tables on the Israelites. He reminds them that he sent those men, Moses and Balaam and Aaron and Miriam, to bring about equity and justice and liberty that those people so desperately needed. So when it comes to this concept of justice, what I, don't, what I want us to do is not forget what God has done, but like those movie directors, I want to steal a page out of God's playbook. I want to copy what he has done and not forget what he has done. And I want to use that as the paradigm for how we as a people do justice. But instead of twisting what God has done and selling it to make millions, I want to apply it with fidelity. And hopefully the goal is not to make millions, but that the hearts and minds of those who hear and see him are changed. What I want us to do as a result of this, I want to redeem the concept of justice from 
our culture and showed it this is God's word. This is God's concept. And the principles that flow out of this should bear practical fruit. Particularly, I want to look at this in light of the differing ethnicities and how we do justice with one another. And this is what I hope we do, that we have, that we have lenses to see and hear things that we previously had no compulsion to consider. Let me say that again. That we have lenses to see and ears to hear things that we previously had no compulsion to consider. My, my hope this morning is that this text grabs you and forces your eyes to see some things. Guys, can we obey the text this morning? Is that going to be okay to do here as God's people? We're going let it, to let it do what it do in us? This is what it tells us to do, to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Now, in order to do that, we have to define divine justice. Remember, we're taking God's playbook, right? So what does divine justice look like? And then we're going to take that theology and apply it to ourselves. So let me give you a definition of divine justice. It's a broad definition. It's an applicable one. It's very simple. Divine justice is the act by which God deals with sin and fixes relationship. That's divine justice. The act by which God deals with sin and fixes relationship, right? We're going to look at the theological concept of justification. That's what that is. This is the theological concept of justification. And the beauty in looking at justification is not what it is. Justification means being declared righteous. But it's the process by which men and women are declared righteous that's the gold in the term. How are men and women declared righteous? How does God deal with their sin and fix their relationship? Well, we're a sinful people, inherently sinful because of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam fell, all men fell, Romans 5, right? And so now we have uh, lived with the effects of sin in and through our lives. In fact, we were born in that condition of, of sinning. And it, 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 we're, in a, we're in a bad state, everyone would agree. But God, because he's just, doesn't just ignore the sin. He decides he's going to deal with the sin. Now, what God didn't do is justify people by something called fiat. Justification by fiat is just picture. It says, man, you're righteous now. You're righteous now. You're over there. You're righteous now. And he just chooses it, and he doesn't deal with sin. He just starts throwing righteousness at people. But that doesn't deal with the problem. And so what Jesus does is he enters into humanity. He sacrifices his own life and it credits his righteousness to those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And through that, those individuals are saved, and by faith, they are justified by God. Now, I want you to look at the pattern of how this happens. God comes into human, to humanity. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, right? Jesus enters into humanity. Then he deals with sin and God's wrath. That's the doctrine of propitiation, he deals with, God's, with sin and God's wrath. And then we are justified as a result of his, of his prior work. Things are made right. Sin is dealt with, and their relationship with God is rectified again. Does that make sense? Incarnation, propitiation, justification. Okay? This is theology. Theology is practical. Because we're going to steal that game plan. That's how we're going to do justice. That's the means by which we're going to impact our world. Listen to what the gospel does. In the gospel, God is doing justice and giving mercy 
so that we can do justice and give mercy. Okay, we pay that forward. Now, I want these four things to come out. One, that we see that God had a heart for mercy for a people who were overwhelmed by sin. That's the first thing I want us to see. Second, God sought them and entered into their reality. Thirdly, God gave of himself in a sacrificial way to redeem them from their plight. And fourthly, now he calls those who have benefited from divine justice to apply justice. Now, as we walk through those four things, I want you to hear this. And I'm going to say this over and over again. Doing justice is not convenient. Doing justice is not convenient. If we think we're doing justice in this world and it's nonchalant, we are not doing justice. We're satisfying our own desire to be thumbed up at best. So now that we have kind of a broad overview of what divine justice looks like, right? The person of Jesus incarnating, taking care of God's, uh, taking care of God's wrath and the, the problem of sin, and then people being justified as a result. Now that we have that, let's apply that theology to us doing justice. And in particular, let's do it with the lens of the series when it comes to ethnic partiality. Because everybody, including me, falls under the category of the sin of partiality. There's none of you who don't. The only one who is impartial is God, which means all of us have sinned in this way at some point or another. So here's the first thing. In order to do justice, here's like the first point, right? In order to do justice and give mercy, we must first have a heart for a people overwhelmed by sin. So if you want to do justice and, and, and give mercy, that's the first thing you have to have. Have a heart for a people who are overwhelmed by sin. Now, if we were to do a historical survey of this country's founding, what we would find would horrify us. You're no stranger to this. I'm no stranger to this. But it's funny how much we don't revisit it. From the early settlers and colonizers to the transatlantic slave trade with the Portuguese, the Dutch, the English, and the Americas. From there was the, the fight for African Americans to be recognized as humans. And finally, that law was passed in 1868. We go from there to the Tulsa Massacre. And then from there, we go to Black Codes. And then from there, we go to Jim Crow. And then from there, we go to the Civil Rights Movement. What are we, what are we learning from this? That our country, this America, is unique. And that in its inception, we have ethnic partiality at its very root. At its very core, it's here. We can't ignore that. The one thing we can't do is have this posture. Well, that was then, this is now, nothing to see here. That's the posture we cannot have. Have any of you guys ever been through a real severe trauma, right? And then maybe the perpetrator of that trauma got disciplined, but you still jacked up, right? It's not done. It's not ongoing. This is where our Trinitarian theology has to come into play. After Jesus paid it all on the cross, what did Jesus do? He sent the Holy Spirit. What's the implication? This continuing work that needs to be done in you, though the legal debt for sin has been paid, my spirit has to help apply that in your soul ongoing because you're jacked up. 
And in the same way, sin is at the root of so much of who we are, and ethnic sin is at the root of so much of who we are as a country that we can't say nothing to see here, it's all good. We have to continue to press in as God's hands and feet to deal what's really there. But the comfortable thing is to say nothing to see here. It's all, it's, that's the past, nothing to see here. I praise God that Jesus didn't say nothing to see here. Paid it all, done, you believe, saved, and then left us to our own devices. He sent his spirit to do work in our souls, continuing and ongoing until he returned. Praise God for that. We are a people who is in a perpetual state of healing, redemption, and reformation. That's what we are as humans, right? We're a people who's in a, in a, we're in a constant, perpetual state of healing, redemption, and reformation. And we have to be a people who also share that posture toward others, a state of healing and redemption and reformation. Now, to be clear, I suspect that none of you in this room had anything to do with the Tulsa massacre. Okay, you didn't do that. No one in this room captained a slave ship, I hope. No one in this room wrote the laws for Jim Crow. Right? None of you. We're not guilty in that way. But none of us in this room ate the fruit in Genesis 3 either. Yet we're still plagued by the effects of it, aren't we? This idea that this was the past and it has no bearing on the present is just not true. We are living in something called the residue of past reality. It's there, and it's dripped onto us, and we can't pretend like, it, like we're not sticky. It's there. And we can't call ourselves men and women of justice and mercy if we ignore the residue that history has left on us all. Men, of justice, men and women of justice and mercy plunge the depths of, the, of what's in and on and around us, what made us tick the way we tick. We plunge those depths in order to bring healing in those areas. That's what men and women of justice and mercy do. Yes, there has been hard-fought legal shifts uh, in this country, and we praise God for those, and those shifts continue to be had. But if we continue to operate in this it's-all-good kind of framework, nothing-to-see-here kind of framework, we're going to lose the ability to have empathy with those who have residue upon them. God's command that we do justice implies that injustice continues in one form or another. And that's just the reality. Otherwise, there's no need to do justice. All is fine. And let me also warn us of this. Injustice is not satisfied by your church attendance or your religious gatherings during the week. That's, that's, not, that's not cutting it. Why do I say that? Matthew 23, 23, Jesus levels an indictment against the Pharisees. Look what he says with me in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he even calls them. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. So you notice what they're doing. They're doing all their religious duties, right? They do, they're doing all their religious duties. Then this is what he says to them. But you have neglected the, weighty, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These ought to have been done without neglecting the others, Jesus says. You see, our default is to not want to do hard things. Amen? I'm guilty too, I know. 
We don't want to do hard things. When something rubs us wrong, we flee, we run, and then we pretend that we're satisfied in the religious actions that we do, but we ignore certain things that God has called us to do because they're hard and they're not directly in front of us. We're not being spoon-fed. But what the text is saying is that we can't ignore our religious obligations of church and cumin and dill the same way we can't ignore doing justice and righteousness. They come together. This is, this is what Jesus is indicting them with. And guys, remember this. Doing justice is what? It's not convenient. So that first point, right, is that if we want to do justice and give mercy, we have to have a heart of empathy toward those who are overwhelmed by sin. And this is the beauty of the concept of justice. It's not just ethnic. It's all over the place. It's in all kinds of spheres and, 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 and arenas, right? This can be applied anywhere, but we're applying it to ethnicity this morning. We have to have a heart of empathy. And my, and my prayer is this. If you don't have a heart of empathy, I want you to start asking yourself, why don't you care? Is it because you're so far removed from it you don't have to? Is it because you think all this stuff is made up and it's a lie and our past doesn't infect our present? But what we do know from the person of God, about, about God and the person of Jesus, is that he, there was a heart of empathy toward a people who were in, engulfed, enveloped in sin. That's where it started. It's a point of empathy. In fact, Hebrews tells us that we don't have a high priest that's not able to sympathize with our realities, right? He, he, he understands. He had a heart of empathy. And that leads us to the second point, which is this. In order to do justice and give mercy, we must seek to enter into another's reality. Let me say that again. If we're going to do justice and give mercy, we have to enter into another's reality. Our triune God, I say this in my territory, he was Gucci. That means he was, he was good, right? So our triune God was Gucci, up in heaven, chilling, all by his triune selves, right? That's where he was. He was up there. He was chilling. He didn't need us, didn't, you know, whatever. But what did he do? God in the person of Jesus went out of his way. Did y'all notice that? There's no divine imperative that he redeemed humanity. He went out of his way to redeem a people inundated by sin. Empathy drove him to enter in. Remember, incarnation. That's where we're going. Empathy, now his incarnation, he entered into humanity. He understood their plight. He listened. He felt the struggles that they went through. Now, most people don't think about justice until we have a need for it. We're entering into the life of an ethnic minority does is it gives the majority culture lenses to see what they would have otherwise missed. Let me give an example. When my oldest daughter was young, we were reading our Bible together. Now, y'all are familiar with the concept of apologetics, right? It's a defense of the Christian faith. And, and there's a concept of apologetics called the inerrancy, not apologetics, it's a theology, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, which means that Scripture is true and right and, and, and no errors within its original uh, manuscripts and autographs, right? It's the idea that Scripture is true in all that it says. It's inerrant, okay? That's a big, lofty theological thing. So I'm reading the Bible, my, my daughter, and we're reading it, and she starts to, like, get worried. And I'm like, what you worried about? Like, we're in Genesis before the fall. Everything should be good. We're happy still. And she was like, Daddy, I noticed that everybody that ends up getting to heaven, they, they, don't, they look different than me. They look, they're white. Does that mean I don't get to heaven? And I was like, whoa, whoa. Now, this is, this is, a, this is over this is about a decade ago, before, you know, these more colored, conscious 
children's works were coming out. This is, we got the old school joint. And I'm like, no, babe, what you talking about? That's not true. But wait a minute, daddy, I thought you said the Bible was true. Oh, shoot. Okay. Now I got to have an apologetic to defend the inerrancy of scripture with my my four-year-old. Well, the Bible is true, but this part isn't true. I thought you said that everything in the Bible was true. Every word is true, right? Yeah, every word is true, but these pictures aren't true. You mean somebody changed the Bible? No, baby, nobody changed the Bible. Oh, man, this is hard. (laughs) If you're a minority in here, y'all might have had the same experience with your child. You've got to have this deep theological apologetic for the inerrancy of Scripture with a four-year-old. Where the authors of the book... And those who may look like the authors never have to even think about that. Never even comes up. So that gives you some lenses. It gives you some, some feels. This is, what it, this is what it does. We don't think about the, the psychological effects of what our past has done. I had lunch with a brother. Happens to have the same last name as me, Parker. My last name is Parker, right? So I was like, oh, man, we met. We thought, let's go have lunch. We ate. And I'm like, man, where'd your family come from? And he's like, oh, England. His family's actually from England. Parker's actually a medieval English name. And he was like, yeah, my people, they trace back to England. I was like, oh, that's cool, cool, man. I was like, yeah, my people are not from England, bro. I was like, my people are from Birmingham, Alabama. And then we kind of did the math. My last name is Parker. My people come from Birmingham, Alabama. And he kind of sat there, and he kind of sat back and was just like, hmm. And at that moment, my friend started to enter in. And he asked me, every time you sign your name? And I was like, yep. Every time I sign my name, I'm reminded of a really bad past. You'd be kidding yourself if you think that doesn't affect you at some level. Some of you guys may understand and empathize with that. Because that may be your story. And uh, for my brothers and sisters who are in the majority culture, I want to call you to do this. I want to call you to try your best to enter into that. If you want to do justice, remember the theme that we're talking about is ethnically, then our duty is to enter in to that reality. And I'm not making that up because Fox News and MSNBC said it. It's because it's what Christ has done. Whether you enter in through books, through a conversation, whether you sit down and and, and put yourself in a particular situation in order to understand what's going on in in the heart and the mind of a person, that's fine. But your job at this point is to enter into that reality. Let me, let me just poke real quick on something, right? (laughs) Um, I did this at the first service, and I don't know how it went, so I'm going to do it now. We'll see. Um, many of us in this room, maybe some of you in this room, have gone to all African-American or Hispanic or Asian church at some point, and you're from majority culture. If you've done that, don't raise your hand, please. Please don't raise your hand. But some, many of us have done that. Now, let me ask this follow-up question. Did you do that as a means of your spiritual survival, or did you do it as like a field trip just to go see what these other cultures do? Many of us who are minorities in this country go to majority culture churches week after week after week, not because it's a comfortable thing. We go there because that's where the word of God is taught and explained. We get to eat from the word and be nourished by the word of truth. It's not an option. It's just where you get the word at. See what that's called? That's called entering in. 
if you have to do that and that reality is for you, I want you to feel that if, you don't, if you've never had to do that. If you've made it a field trip to visit other countries and other cultures, that, that's fine and dandy, but imagine having to do that for your own spiritual survival. Right? There's a piece of you that has to be stopped at the door potentially so that you can worship with no hiccup, no problem, no division among us. But in the people of God, as the people of God, we have to fight for that not to be the case. That you can bring all that your ethnic, ethnicity is. You know, God doesn't erase our ethnicity once we become redeemed. We're celebrated in it. We, can, we get to express the fullness of it, redeemed, not, 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 not marred by sin anymore. We should be able to bring that in as the people of God, but it's so hard. It's entering in. It's a hard process. When, when Jesus entered into humanity, you think that was just some simple... That, 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 he went from the, the crowns of heaven to the, to the molehills of earth. That's, that's a huge chasm to jump. Why, why, did he, why do we think that doing justice is going to be convenient for us? It, it's, not, it's not convenient. Here's the third thing that we do. So the, the first thing is we, get, we ask God for a heart of empathy. The second thing we do is we enter into the realities of those who are inundated by sin. Here's the third thing we do. And if we want to do justice and give mercy, we give ourselves to help rectify the plight that we see. Now, this is where many of us get hung up because we allow the culture to tell us that we got to do it in some political way, by some political means, right? We got to vote for this candidate or vote for this party, and that's the only way and all this. Nah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pushing none of that on y'all. I just want y'all to do what Christ did. Christ entered in, and then he gave of himself in order to lift up a people who were inundated by a particular plight, sin, up. Right? And that can look different for different people. Now, let me free you of this. You're never going to be able to get rid of injustice everywhere. So take that out your head immediately. You can't do it. This is where you got to have a strong theology of proximity. This is where you do hard work. Remember, doing justice is not convenient. This is where you do hard. This is the hard part. Where do I live, work, and play? Everybody live, work. If you've worked in any kind of field for any amount of time, you've seen injustice, whether it be ethnic or otherwise. You've seen it, right? And our, our, our duty is to not do the easy thing and ignore it, because that's what we usually do. We can't ignore it. We have to resist it. That's the hard part. When you, when you have a, a theology of, of proximity, then you can do that. Here, here's what the challenge is. The challenge is to not to do the convenient thing, but to do the hard work of contact tracing the systemic beneficiaries of a particular thing and the systemic casualties of a particular thing. Y'all heard it? I'm going to say it again. Listen closely. The challenge is to not do the convenient thing. That's the first step. Don't do what seems convenient. Here's what we need to do. The hard work of contact tracing. Who are the systemic beneficiaries of this reality? Who are the systemic casualties of this reality? Let me give an example. In Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, he gave an example of a car salesman. The car salesman uh, noticed, you know, that, you know, when you buy a car, I don't know if y'all have got a car, but you got to do a little negotiation, right? You don't go in there ready to pay that, that sticker price, right? You go in there knowing you're going to knock a few hundred off of that. You go back and forth and back and forth. But his car salesman felt uneasy about that, and he did a little research. And he found out that minority females are more likely to get hosed by negotiation practices and car sales than any other people group. And those are the people groups that are in the most need of a vehicle. 
and they don't have the negotiation or wherewithal to continue negotiating with somebody. They need that vehicle, and they need it now, and so the urgency for us is in, and they're willing to cut the check for a bad deal because they got to get their kids to school or work or what have you. And so this car salesman was like, wait a minute, we're hurting people by this common practice called car negotiations. So we're not doing that anymore. We're doing a flat sale. Stick a price, that's it. We're not doing anything more. Now, if you know anything about car sales, car sales, that hurts your bottom line. Because when you have a good negotiator and he gets you a lot of money, somebody comes in to buy a car and he's a good negotiator and he drops that price down, you got to make it up off the back of somebody. And usually it's off the back of those minority females, usually minority mothers, who are distracted by their kids in the background. So he did something about it. Just, just not too long ago, I talked to a business owner, and he was looking. He was like, man, I, I don't know what to do. My whole circle is homogenous ethnically. I don't even know what to do. And, and they were a group of business owners. And so I asked, are all the workers ethnically homogenous like y'all? No. Okay. Now the hard work is why. Because everybody looks a certain way at one class of status, and everybody looks away at another, and never the two shall meet. That's not, we can't be complacent with that. There might be a reason for that that goes well beyond education or crime. Samuel DeWitt Proctor said this. He said, and, and, and he applied this to his context. He said, those of us who have inherited benefits that we did not earn or deserve need to turn around and help those who inherited deficits that they did not earn or deserve to help people rise up to the scratch line where we are. Samuel DeWitt Proctor is an African-American pastor in an African-American neighborhood that is ridden by crime and people are, bought, uh, people are born into a bad deal. And so he says that I, somebody took a shot on me and I got to make it up to the scratch line. And now my duty is to go back to my community and help people make it up to the scratch line. That's hard work. We'd rather not do it because in the process of helping people get to the scratch line, they do things you don't like. And when they do things you don't like, you cut them off. That's what we do. Praise God that we do things that Jesus doesn't like and he'll cut us off. We've got to get people to the scratch line. This, in, this may include, and this is where it looks different, maybe it's giving resources. Maybe it's leveraging your power in a particular area. Maybe it's sharing knowledge. Maybe it's just being some kind of a, and I know this is a loaded term, whistleblower. Wait, I see a problem. I don't know what to do about it, but I see this problem. Anybody else see it with me? Am I the only one? Are we going to do anything about it or are we going to go with the status quo? Doing justice may take a bit of creativity, but it will always cost you something. And I didn't make that up. It cost our Lord and Savior greatly. The temptation is to do nothing, to say it's all good here, but that's the, that's the disposition of a, people, of a person who's not entered in. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. This is what the Scripture tells us to do because of our inclination. It says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, Bring justice and fatherless. Uh, 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 bring justice to bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Notice those that first line. Learn to do good, but then this one. Seek justice. Why is he telling us to seek it? Because our inclination is to not. He says, "No, I got to tell y'all, seek it. You got to look for it. You got to do that hard work of contact tracing. That's hard. As soon as it gets hard, I don't want to do it anymore." But he knows, no, you have to seek it. That's not the only place. Look at Proverbs thirty-one, verse nine. Look what it says. Open your mouth. Why is he telling us to open our mouth? Because the inclination is to not. This is God charging us. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy and etc. Guys, doing justice is not convenient. 
And if you're going to do justice in your sphere of life, you need to seek justice and open your mouth. Fourthly, this is the motivator. So we ask God for a heart of empathy, then we enter in, and then we help use our resources to help lift the people out of their particular plight. And this fourth one is the big one. It's the motivator. Those of us who have benefited from divine justice and mercy must go forth and apply justice and mercy. Now, many of us think doing justice is going to the other side of town. You know, all, you know, you point, all they need is the gospel. Right? Is that been any, that's been, all they need is the gospel. You know, it's funny, I don't see anybody from the other side of the tracks going over there to, get to administer that dose of gospel. Not only that, they don't know how to apply the gospel to a situation where I don't have any milk in my fridge. How does the gospel help me when I'm, I'm starving? I got no food. My kids are hungry. What do I do now? I don't know. Repent and believe? The gospel makes us right with God, and it bridges the gap between one another. It tears down the dividing wall. Absolutely. But that's just part of the equation that Matthew 23 speaks about. We pinch our cumin and our dill, but we've neglected the help and the service of the people. Ask the Samaritan on the road who took that individual up. He gave of himself to, to, uh, to ensure that that man was safe and housed and fed. That's called doing justice. Micah 6.8, this is where that, that last point leads us. He told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So if you've been a recipient of divine justice, your obligation is to be a giver of justice and mercy in your everyday lives. What we can't do is be content with the residue of ethnic partiality and can't allow it to corrode the church or this world. But instead, we need to have a heart that's empathetic to those overwhelmed by sin. We need to enter into their realities we need to give, ourselves, uh, give of ourselves to rectify their plight. This is what the gospel does. It makes us right with God, and it tears down dividing walls amongst people. I pray that our posture is this, that though doing justice is not convenient, we do it because it's godly. No political motives needed. This is what we saw the Savior do. This is what we do. We serve those around us, and we give of ourselves to lift them to the scratch line. Father, there's so much more that I wanted to say, didn't, didn't say, but I pray that whatever was said was helpful. I pray that it gave a framework, and I pray that the people would do the hard work of administering justice in their spheres of life. And that their theology of proximity would be strong. And that they would look around themselves and wonder, where is the injustice in my neck of the woods? Why does this look this way and that look that way? How come it, it can't look different? Should it look different? Is there sin of ethnic partiality that's keeping it from looking different? Oftentimes, Lord, those who, those who are the most angry at this concept are the most guilty. And I know for me, Lord, I, I was, I'm that. I'm guilty of partiality. But I thank you for the gospel that bridges the gap. I thank you for the truth of your word that's called me to preach that men's soul be saved and their bodies be fed. That if I see evil anywhere, you've called me to speak. I can't say, Lord, where are you? You sent me. I'm the one who saw it. 
You sent Moses. You sent Aaron. You sent Miriam. Lord, you sent us. Lord, will we have a heart to do justice and not be satisfied? Not be satisfied to be content with status quo. Lord, change us in Christ's name.